0: I'm really excited. This is one of my passions, and I think we're really changing the field. We're changing the way we practice medicine at Hopkins.
1: Welcome back to the Faculty Factory podcast, folks. I'm your host, Kim Skorupski. On today's episode, I'm really pleased to introduce you to Dr. Jose Suarez. Jose, how are you?
0: Oh, hi, Kim. How are you? Nice to be here.
1: Well, thank you so much, Jose. Why don't you tell people what it is you do here at Hopkins?
0: Yes, I'm, the, I'm a professor and director of the Neurosciences Critical Care Division, and uh, that's part of the departments of Neurology, Neurosurgery, and Anesthesia and Critical Care Medicine. I'm also the director of the Precision Medicine Center of Excellence for Neurocritical Care.
1: Okay, well, we've heard about precision medicine, and I cannot wait to get into this really juicy topic today because, folks, guess what? Dr. Jose Suarez is going to talk to us about information overload in the context of what he does every day. So, take it away, Jose.
0: Yes, I think at one point that is important to realize is that when patients are admitted to the to any ICU. Uh, you know, there is a lot of monitoring that goes, that, you know, that goes on in the ICU. You get hooked up to a lot of different devices. And we as providers and the nurses in the, uh, in the unit are bombarded continuously by an overload of information. And it's very difficult to know what a part of that information is, is more important than the other. And uh, the truth is that most of the time, the information that we receive and all the alarms that we receive... May not be that important. So the the challenge for us is trying to determine which which of those alarms or which of that or those pieces of information are the ones that we should be responding to.
1: Wow! So I can already think of so many applications of this concept of information overload, data bombing, alarm. a state of constant alarm and alarm fatigue. So this is just, I think, so important on so many levels. But why don't you tell us about how this, uh, what you developed this concept of handling and prioritizing alarms works in precision medicine and in emergency and then in critical care. And then let's talk um, about how we can apply this uh, up and down and across different, different levels of our daily lives.
0: Yes, sure. So what we're trying to do is is basically is trying to get all that information, integrate that information, and come up with a better classification for our patients. What that means is that we're trying to find um, uh, features that are similar to the patients that are the sickest and the patients who are the healthiest when they're in the ICU. And by doing that, by, by finding those features that apply to one group or the other, we can actually define them better and then create alarms or create um, um, uh, you know information that goes directly to the providers or the nurses to let them know this is important This is not that important. So if something is really important, what we're telling them is, please go pay attention to Mr. X in bed, Y, the patient needs extra attention. Please go and review the records, examine the patient, because something is happening there that you need to attend to now. Now, the other piece of information that would be important is that we can also help family members when they come in to the ICU, because they're they're also seeing all those alarms. They're also hearing the alarms. And that creates a lot of anxiety and a lot of stress among the family members. So we're also trying to tell them, okay, don't worry about this. This is not, this is not an important alarm. But if you hear X, Y, or Z, and then we will let you know those are the ones that are important. So that, that they could have hopefully a more pleasant experience in the ICU. And they could, they could feel more at ease knowing that we are developing extra tools that can help us define those patients better.
1: Wow. I am just so excited to get into this Jose and I it sounds to me like you have figured out and that you are working on alarm phenotypes. You know, identifying patterns that will then triage this category of alarms into uh, in a code system: a code red, a code yellow, a code orange, green, etc. Am I thinking about this in the right way? A phenotype.
0: That's exactly correct. Yes, you're, uh, you you got it. You actually explained it really well right there. Yeah, that's exactly what we're trying to do. So uh, let me give you an example. Let's say we have a group of patients who come in. I don't know with uh, traumatic brain injury, right? They have. They were all involved in a car accident, so. In theory, they look—they may look the same. They may have the same age. They may have the same type of accident, but in reality, their brains behave differently, and their system, their, their hearts, their lungs behave differently. So, what we're trying to do is trying to define them better, group them, so that we know that, say, we have a hundred of them, maybe twenty of them may be sicker in reality compared to the other eighty that were that were there, and that's what we're trying to do. And um, and then triage them in a, in a manner that we can create those specific alarms that can help us determine these patients are developing more brain swelling than these other ones. Yeah. And and that, that will help us be more precise in the treatments that we're administering. And actually, it will help us also try to determine what type of complications may present and anticipate them, which right now we're very limited and trying to determine when to anticipate one of those complications so that we can give the treatment before it's too late.
1: Because isn't that the beauty and the whole purpose of precision medicine, which is to come up with that predictive tool, not only the proper treatment, but then the prediction of future events. That that is genius. That's exactly the whole intention of this.
0: Yes, that is correct. So we're trying to do this correct. So we're trying to see whether we can predict that uh, maybe two hours before or an hour before, even if it's 10 minutes before, that will be sufficient for us to actually come at the bedside and tend to address what the problem is and fix it before it's too late.
1: And this is again, well, this is a topic for a different conversation and maybe and not with you, Jose, or maybe later, but taking the ideas of precision medicine into precision education and hence what I've been kind of beating around for a couple of years is now precision faculty development. The same idea that taking programming delivering it to 100 faculty members and trying to then predict which faculty members need information tailored, tweaked, adjusted, uh, another booster of this or that or the other to predict success, if you will, down the line. So I love how that concept can be parlayed into other uh, domains.
0: That is correct. The principles are the same. And uh, obviously, you know, we're using all this sophisticated technology that we have right now, and we're using also a lot of sophisticated uh, computational uh, modeling that we do. You know, we use uh, advanced statistical modeling, and also what we call data science, which is essentially just it's just computing all the numbers until we come up with the the prediction models that that actually work oh. um, in the ICU.
1: Data mining, data science—it is so smart. We have all this, you know, abundant data that we don't really maximize. So that again, I can't, I can't help but put on as the senior associate dean for faculty development my faculty development hat, thinking, "Oh my goodness!" The, se- the same if we take all the data we have known around a fa- the life trajectory, the life course of a faculty member, all those data points, and then try to predict the success. Uh, then we can really fine tune our treatment and I'm putting my little finger quotes up here the treatment is what you give in the, in the ER and the ed is our treatment is the programming is the resources is it you know it's all the kind of things that we develop and give to faculty. so I'm so excited about that. But I want to s- switch back to something else you said that was really really important and that is you brought in the, the systems, the family systems approach that the other element in addition to the scientific, Uh, medicine, treatment, cure, prevention, all those um, ideas is the undergirding, the the importance and the value of the family being there and hearing all those alarms. And I'm reflecting on the time that I had with my mom before she passed in the intensive care and the hospital and all the alarms going up nonstop. And just the, the maddening the maddening stress of that, of feeling like it's been going off for 20 minutes and nobody seems to be in any kind of a yank to get in here and fix that, whatever's going on. They come in and go, Oh yeah, the hose was just pinched or twisted or something. I'm thinking, well, that isn't that kind of important. And and it was really raising my stress level, not only because I felt like where's the where's the care? But it also kind of the noise, the maddening noise of that and thinking, how's my mom supposed to be resting, rejuvenating, healing with all these bells and buzzers going off nonstop and then people running in or not running in because the thing is making noise. I didn't, we'd end up turning it off, unplugging it. And you think, well, that can't be right. So I'd, lo- I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about how you educate family members around this is an annoying buzzer, this is the one we're really paying attention to, if this, then that, how do you engage in education and conversation around that with family members?
0: Yes, that's a, that's a, a very good point, uh, because at the moment, of course, as you, as you uh, pointed out, uh, there is not a good method to actually try to discern what's important and what's not, what's a nuisance alarm and what's actually really, really important. Because you know, for family members, they are all important, as you already said. but for those of us who work in the ICU, we take a lot of those for granted because we know this may not be important, but family members don't, right? right. so what we're so what we're trying to do is try to come up with all those predictors so that we can actually group all of those, say instead of having uh, hundred alarms, we can actually reduce it to two or three that are really, really important. And then we can meet with family members and tell them that when you see this or when you hear that, that means that that's really important and we will respond to those. You will see a team uh, of of physicians and nurses coming into the room to try to address that problem. If for some reason you see that, yes, that, that alarm or that whistle, whatever you want to call it, goes off, and there's no one around, then that's a sign of concern. That's when you should really be concerned. And I think so that we're trying to get them uh, more involved with the care of their loved ones, so to speak, so that they understand uh, when to react to. And I think that would also help uh, reduce the level of stress.
1: Mm, Dr. Suarez, that is just so, it's so fundamental to care and just common decency and respect. So first of all, thank you for, being mindful of this and noticing this and and recognizing the family as part of this system of this patient and so i just think it just it's such a simple basic common courtesy but it's just profound because we really don't talk about it so first of all thank you and and i really want to i want to share another story and kind of because it's making me recall a couple months ago i went to the dentist and i had these gaps between some of my teeth and the gum line so of course, um, they have to put some kind of like primer or some spackling, for all intents and purposes, they put in there to fill that little crevice. And part of the polishing is they had to do that. And and after she was done with the polishing machine, I said, you know, Doctor Lynn, I love you, and I'm so you know profoundly you know thankful and grateful for this technology, but for the love of peak. You would revolutionize dentistry, the whole industry, if you could put a silencer on this thing. If we could put silencer on weapons and sneak around shooting people you know, on the sly, why in the world can't you put a silencer on this whirring noise? And she kind of laughed and said, oh, Kim, you know, you know, you're not the first person to say this. We know how annoying it is and anxiety provoking it is in the patient and imagine what it is for us listening to it all day long so i'm thinking of course not only about the patients and their families being exposed to this mind numbing anxiety provoking you know noise all day with their with their mom or dad or loved one but also the folks, as you say, who work there and are used to it and take it for granted and tune it out. But it's got to be boring in their skull at some point before they are capable of blocking it out. But my question to you, after all these words I'm putting out here, is as a, if I'm an engineer or somebody in, in you know um, industry, we're listening to this. They go, well, why these medicine people? You know, you know how dumb are they? We can certainly design something that will dummy-proof these machines. The question that I would think a logical person would say. Well, why in the world, if these are non-essential alarms, why is there even an alarm going off or crying out loud? Mute it! Stop it! Why did they build in? If you know, if we back this train up, and you figured out a phenotyping issue, why in the world do these manufacturers even design an alarm? Yes,
0: yeah, that's that's an excellent point. And uh, the problem is, if you go, if you walk into an ICU, and you walk into a patient's room, it looks like you're in a spaceship. Right. That's what it looks like. You look at all the screens and all these waveforms and all those colors that you see there. The problem is that every single one of those machines is manufactured by a different company so that every single one of them builds their own codes and they just don't talk to each other. So what we end up with is this overload of information. We have to interpret everything visually or manually because that's what we're getting. Right. Right. And it was something that I didn't really it didn't really click to me until I started working with in you know, some other project that I was working with with NASA engineers, right? So and I remember we brought them into the ICU and we showed them, look, we have all this machinery. It looks really nice. And I noticed that they were not really impressed. Yeah, they say, yes, I, I see you have a lot of equipment there. It looks really nice and new. It smells new. But you know, they don't talk to each other. So they figure it out very quickly. And they say, this is the problem that we were facing back in the days when we started with the space program. And that was the first thing that we needed to figure out. One of the first things is how to integrate all those data so that when the pilots get on the rocket, they know that if this light goes off, this is what it means. And if and if uh, there is this signal going on on this screen here, It means why I need to do why. They don't need to know what every single button means. They only need to know what the alarms mean and how to fix them. And that's what really got me going with this idea about doing something similar in the ICU. Understanding, of course, that we're not machines. We're humans and we behave a little different. And we have to adapt that technology to the ICU.
1: Oh my gosh, genius NASA engineers and machine learning, getting the machines to talk to each other. Now I'm thinking robots and artificial intelligence, but yes, that does seem to me to be the next step that don't leave it up to humans and hence human error to make interpretations and go down that decision tree. Rather, program it that it like a, our computers at home, our laptops, that these devices talk to each other, or the Bluetooth. You plug this in there and it says, hey. I see you're trying to get the speaker to turn on or my phone into place. Hey, I found a Wi-Fi. You want to get into this thing? The same thing. Those machines going, Oh, I recognize the R 23 XP 22. And it's having an alarm, which is nonsense. Would you like me to mute that? You know, 99.9% point of the time, we're going to mute that. So it's going to say, Hey, you do, you know, quiet hush up. So that, that talking in that, cross walking machines. And if you can get the industry to design, you know, the design thinking approach of just like those NASA engineers, you get the end users in the room, you know, you get the brain surgeons in the room when you're building a brain surgery tool and have them focus group it. And then if we could get that kind of next generation, wow, wouldn't that be fabulous?
0: Yes, and that, and that's the that's the challenge for us, right? So we and we need to bring in the computing, the data science, um, and also the human factor. So all of them together to yeah. come up with that. So it really, we're required to come up with the classification that I mentioned to you earlier, classifying the patients better, and also uh, coming up with an output that will make people change the way we behave in the ICU and the way we care for patients today. So we require a significant amount of changes, but we're ready for the challenge and we have the technology and we're lucky that we're here at Hopkins where we have a tremendous amount of manpower or woman power. We have a lot of uh, scientists in different fields that are working with us, collaborating with us to make this a reality.
1: And Dr. Jose Suarez, what do you need or what could we use to get us to the next generation, the next level?
0: Yeah, one thing that we would need, of course, we need uh, a, a very steady source of funding to do this so that this could be actually we can maintain this and keep going with this uh, with this uh, program. You know, so we really uh, it's something really novel and uh, we're really changing the field and it will be uh, really uh, good for us if we can make this self sustainable uh, with a good source of funding. That will be um, uh, really the key.
1: Oh my gosh, this is just fascinating. I could talk with you for a couple hours about this. Jose, if someone wants to reach out to you because maybe someone's listening to this or they've sent this episode to a friend of theirs and someone wants to invest in the wonderful science and the, the wonderful creativity that we're doing here at Hopkins, how might they get in touch with you?
0: I think probably the best way could, could be either sending me a, an email through my email address at suarez five at jhmi.edu. That would be the best way. I'm very responsive to emails. So that would be the best way for them to communicate.
1: Let me repeat that. It's J Suarez, which stands for Jose Suarez five. So it's J S U A R E Z, the number five at jhmi, which stands for Johns Hopkins Medical Institute jhmi.edu. I am just so excited about this whole thing. I love talking about this really cool next generation steps of precision medicine. Let's drag in this through to precision faculty development. It's the future. We're doing it. Thank you so much for the work you're doing and for bringing all these geniuses together in the ICU and all, all the wonderful work you're doing in neuro. And um, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast today. I'm going to leave the last num word up to you, Dr. Suarez.
0: You no, thank you very much for for inviting me, and uh, I'm really excited. This is one of my passions, and I think we're really changing the field. We're changing the way we practice medicine at Hopkins.
1: Wow. Well, Doctor Suarez, I, I I just thank you so much, folks. I hope you were as excited by about this topic as I was. You've been listening to the Triple H, the habits and hacks from Hopkins today. You've learned about information overload, data bombing, and maybe ways we can think about triaging and of phenotyping how we respond to alarms. And I bet you can think of other ways to apply this concept, even with your teams, in your staff, at your homes. How can we really kind of focus on the important alarms in our lives? Thank you, Jose.
0: Thank you, Kim.
1: Bye, everybody.